Amen. Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you on this Lord's Day. Let's let's read Titus 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. God, would you instruct us? And as you promised in your prophetic hope that you would write the law in our hearts, Lord. Would you continue to purify us and train us this morning? Lord, we love you. Amen. In the spirit of what is happening all over our country right now, during this season, in May of 2009, a special moment of my life took place. Throngs of people funneled into the Oregon State Fair Fairgrounds Convention Center to watch as West Salem High School seniors walked across the stage and received high school diplomas. By God's grace, I was a part of some of those seniors that day. Believe it or not, though, back then, I wasn't a big fan of school. Yet, graduation inevitably dawned, and boy, was I grateful. Ten years later, however, I found myself walking across another stage, though this time I voluntarily and accepted and took on another educational endeavor. Even though it was a joy to attend seminary, it was not without stress. As I handed in my last paper, there was quite a sense of relief from Greek paradigms and just another book to read. Yet in this life, brothers and sisters, there is a school in which we will never graduate. In fact, if you find yourself not enrolled in this school, we should ask ourselves and find ourselves very worried. In fact, it is the school of God's grace. Though, like any school, there will be a graduation. In heaven, it will be infinitely sweeter infinitely more glorious, incomparably better, and much more fulfilling because it will accomplish every purpose of its education. That is because God's salvific grace is preparing us for his glory, his very presence. Let me say that again. God's salvific grace is preparing us for his eternal glory. Beloved, God's grace is the fount of Christian living. So with that in mind, let us examine this morning what it looks like to attend the school of God's grace. So if we are going to argue for such a proposition, we must first ask ourselves a very important 
question. What actually is God's grace? We, we, you know, we often use terms like this in Christianity. We throw them around, right? And sometimes they can lose their emphasis, kind of lose their meaning. Anybody, anybody else feel that with grace? Just one of those Bible terms? Well, I find grace helpful to understand it in light of two other words, justice and mercy. In simple terms, justice is getting what you deserve. That is, if you break the law, you deserve to be punished for it. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve for a trespass. If you get pulled over for speeding, an officer shows you mercy by giving you a warning and letting you go. But here's where grace comes in and why it's such a big deal in Christianity. Grace is mercy or pardon plus the benefit and gift of righteousness. Grace is walking into God's courtroom guilty, dead as charged. Then your sentence is fully justly accounted for every point of it and then the laws demand credited and accomplished to your name for the rest of your life then the judge hands you a new passport and says hey by the way those doors that you walked in they're locked you you got to come out with me to my country that's grace that is grace. That's why John Newton rightly penned amazing grace. It's amazing. This is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism in questions 33 to 35 on the topics of justification, adoption, and sanctification all start by saying they are an act of God's free grace. Without grace, we are not legally declared righteous with the law's demand perfectly upheld in our name. Without grace, we are not adopted into his family, given status as sons, heirs of eternal life and citizens of his kingdom. Without grace, we have no hope of sanctification and following God through this life and persevering to the end. To be clear, God was merciful toward us. No doubt about it. In just the next chapter, Paul says God acted according to his mercy in saving us. Mercy is indeed important, but we need grace. We needed God's unmerited favor toward us. If I can go on a tangent for a moment, I, I, I think this is often our big problem in our Christian life. Right? We, we believe God has been merciful toward us. We believe our sins have been forgiven. But that was it. And we go about our life one misstep from being guilty again. Oh, I, I, I got to go back to that court because now I'm guilty because he just pardoned me. There was no grace. 
Am I right? Anybody, anybody else feel that? Maybe I'm alone in this. Oh, I, I know God was merciful, but gracious. I don't know. Brothers and sisters, that is not Christianity. It is not what the grace of God Paul exhorts to Titus. It is not the grace of God that appeared that saved you. Saved you from what then is the question. To answer that question, we will have to speak to the nature of this grace. Is it some nebulous force? Is it an abstract power, maybe? No. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. In the beginning of John's Gospel, he talks about the appearance of God's grace in the person of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 say this, For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As we look back at our passage in Titus, Paul explains grace and the saving work of Christ in verse 14. He says this, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's focus on this line for a second. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus gave himself. As to his flesh, he was born under the law and lived righteously before it, never missing out on any part of it. He was sinless, perfectly righteous, yet that was only his human nature. As the eternal Son of God took on flesh, the second person of the Trinity took his divine nature with him. Now that person, fully divine, fully human, perfectly obeying and never obstructing the law in any fashion, gave himself for us on our behalf, in our place. To do what? Redeem. To buy back. To purchase out of the penalty of sin, which his father pronounced at the Garden of Eden. To Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Christ used his righteousness, his sinless life, as a substitutionary payment for our transgressions, for our every transgression. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. But how can he redeem us from every ounce of lawlessness, right? Because he is of infinite worth. The infinite worth of his nature, the magnitude of his perfection, redeemed our every lawless action. That's grace. That is the grace of God that Paul is talking about. That appeared and first moved to save you. It wasn't just mercy. It was abundant grace for every lawless deed redeemed. 
Beloved, do not go on believing that Christ died for just some of your sin. His infinite worth and value paid for every single one. The penalty, the full penalty of our crime was paid. He died. In faith, we are not one misstep away from being guilty. You have been given abundant grace. It brought us back from slavery to our lawless passions and pleasures, like Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I mean, this is really just the gospel. Paul says everything is here in the gospel. That's all we need. What a miraculous and sweet joy to behold. And this is the first thing we need to understand about God's grace before we get on to its moral exhortations. It saves us. The grace of God that appeared first and foremost saved us. Grace in in saving us, enrolled us in its school. You didn't come to the school yourself. Grace had to pluck you out of the school of hard knocks and permit you to study. If we are to return to another analogy, we actually find grace brought you into God's courtroom early so that he could bring down the gavel and say righteous. We had early admission to our court date, and that we did. It is all grace. I know this first point is getting long, but let me quickly address what Paul says and continues to say by all people, bringing salvation for all people. Is he suggesting that we now change our name to Sand Harbor Unitarian Universalist? I I hope not, and I don't believe so. Three quick reasons. First, let's look at the pronouns Paul uses to describe God's salvation. Training us, our blessed hope, our great God. He gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify a people. Not this universal scope of atonement. If that were the case, Paul would actually be shooting himself in the foot, wouldn't he? Hey, hey, guys, I know what you're thinking, but yeah, do good stuff. Yeah, the rest of the world is going to be saved too, but you for attending the church in Crete, you got to live right. Wouldn't make much sense, right? They're going to be saved too, but they can live however they want. They're going to get there. That logic wouldn't fly. Secondly, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, right the paragraph right before us, Paul addresses five different groups of people. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and bond servants. All of these groups of people are in mind when Paul writes, God's grace brought salvation for all people. All those different groups. There isn't 
one group excluded from God's salvation program. Third, if we zoom out a little further, and I I think this is almost the most important one, if we zoom out a little further into the whole context of the letter of Titus, we understand there's quite a bit of a Jewish-Gentile controversy going on. And, And this is culminated in this party called the Circumcision Party from chapter 1, verse 10. I, I guess Crete not only had Republicans and Democrats, but they had circumcisers. But basically what seems like was going on is there's a faction of Jewish Christians who were advocating to Gentile Christians that they weren't really Christian unless they took on circumcision, food and dietary laws, celebrated the Jewish festivals, etc., etc. Look, for example, at 1.14 or 3.9, and essentially their message was God's messianic salvation was really only for Jews, so become one. However, Paul, in our passage, in 2.11, and likewise in other places across his epistles, destroys that thinking by saying God's grace appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Now I think we need to turn our attention to the second action of God's grace, the transformational education it provides. As we move on to moral exhortation, though, I think we need to keep in mind the order and source, or else we find ourselves in a world of hurt. The primary and initial function of grace was bringing salvation, as we just talked about. Then Paul says God's grace continues forward in our lives, instructing or training us, as he says. Look at verse 12 with me, where Paul lays out the accompanying fruit grace produces in our lives. It says, training us in two different ways, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. There's a negative and a positive aspect to grace, the grace of God training us. It's kind of like a battery, positive and negative. For the sake of time, I want to address them both together as a unified whole, though we could talk about each aspect individually at length. When we hear this command, though, I I think there's a part of our heart that almost cringes a little bit. Over time, we can think, yeah, oh, great. You know, God's grace keeps us from having fun and just obeying the rules, right? Don't we feel that from time to time? And maybe you're thinking, if you're not a believer, I knew there was a catch. I I knew there was a catch to this grace thing. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Why? Why? Simply because of this. Without God's grace, you couldn't ever work towards godliness. Without God's grace... You were only doing one thing, which was 
obeying your passions and worldly pleasures. Now, let's think about that. Before God's grace, it was impossible to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Chapter 3, verse 3 makes this really clear when Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is to say, prior to conversion, prior to the grace of God appearing in our lives, there wasn't a second of our existence where we were capable of saying no to sin. Think about that for a second. We, we were incapable of saying no to sin because we loved it. We were slaves to our passions and pleasures. Now, now at the dawning of God's salvific grace, it is possible to say no to sin. God's grace is instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace is enabling us to walk in freedom from sin, in his righteousness. And that is characterized by self-control, godliness, and uprightness. Now, this also tells us something really important. The reality of the new covenant has dawned with God's grace. Think about Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. Let me read that for a second. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. If that wasn't convincing, Ezekiel 36, where he also forecasts the new covenant in verses 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart. That's that slavery to your passions and pleasures. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is good news. God's grace training us is very good news. Furthermore, the training in righteousness that God's grace supplies is also a summary of the prior ten verses that just came before it. And there's the reason Paul now exhorts them in doctrine. God's saving grace has appeared and trains us in righteousness for how older and younger men are to behave, older and younger women are to behave, bond servants and free Jew and Gentile in the church to live self-controlled, godly lives, shining light like lights in a dark world. 
he also is condensing the imperatives in a few words, which then he unpacks in the very next few sentences in the beginning of chapter 3. That being said, I think there's an important implication that we need to think about, though. Because or else, we can fall into some serious traps. First of all, there's an there's an ordering that implies we are not saved because we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Nor because we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It was salvation was simply an act of God and his grace. Then that grace continued forward in our lives and is an agent of training. If in doubt, in the next chapter, Paul reminds us of this reality in verse 4 when he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That is to say, our training in righteousness did not merit our salvation. It did not prompt it. It could not earn it. Yet it sustains us. God's grace now instructs, teaches, and trains us in righteousness, which is ours. The grace that saves is the grace that trains. Yet, There are three traps that I think we can easily slip into, right? These traps are legalism, despair, and apathy. Despair can set in when we fail, fall, or trip over sin. But training is just that. It's preparation. It's education. It's not mastery. Training does not equate to perfection. Nor should we expect that to be attained in this life. But God's grace will perfect us in glory at his return. To which, you know, we're going to turn to in just a minute. On the flip side, when we think we are doing well, we can become legalistic and proud of our righteousness and neglect the fact that it is only happening because of God's grace. Finally, the last thing we want to remember is we are trained in righteousness, which can be a byproduct of despair, but I think it can arise on its own, is apathy, caring. We are now, we are because of God's grace to address sin very seriously and conduct our lives in holiness because God's grace has saved us. Because we are citizens of the king, like Wes said this morning. That was really good. God's grace has dawned and we are not allowed to be apathetic anymore. We are his. 
The Westminster Confession sums up this whole point in chapter 9, paragraph 4, on the subject of free will. Listen to what it says. When God converts a sinner and brings him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage to sin. And by his grace alone, he enables him freely to will and to do what is spiritually good. Yet, because of his remaining corruption, he does not perfectly nor only will what is good, but also wills what is evil. Not perfection, but training in righteousness from a resounding reformation sola. God's grace alone. Paul accompanied our training in righteousness with a time stamp, though. He said, in this present age, which is best understood, I think, in between the appearance of God's grace and another monumental event, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This leads us to our last and final point this morning of what God's grace is doing in our lives. It is stirring our affections in anticipation of Christ's glorious return. As Paul said, it is our blessed hope. Our last point this morning is really the icing on the cake, the real undergirding rationale behind it all. For some reason in my mind, when I think of this, I I have that scene in Sandlot where Smalls doesn't know who Babe Ruth is after they hit it out of the park. And he goes, yeah, who is she? And they go, you don't know Babe Ruth? The Sultan of Swat? The King of Crash? The Colossus of Clout? The Great Bambino? We, like Smalls, can miss the point when we don't realize and appreciate what we have and what it's worth and what it's doing and preparing us for. God's grace in our lives saved us and is training us for an ultimate purpose, which should be stirring our affections for right now. We are waiting for our blessed hope. Our training in righteousness is not behavior modification. It is preparing us for his glorious return. We are being trained in righteousness because our king and savior is coming to dwell with us forever. As Isaiah foretold about the restoration of Israel, In chapter 40, verse 3 to 5. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. You hear this, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The prophetic hope has dawned with grace. I want, us, 
I want to leave us with this thought this morning of our blessed hope. At first, when I read this glory, I was thinking of Mount Sinai after the Exodus or the temple after Solomon's dedication. But I I think Paul actually intends us to see something else. He's, He's talking about the glory of Christ because there is a sense in which in the incarnation, it veiled his glory. Listen to what Jesus actually himself prays for in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. With the glory he had with the Father before the world existed. That is because the form we saw him in, in his incarnation, was that of a servant, as Paul said in Philippians 2. Born in a feeding trough, flees for his life at infancy, born to a poor family, shrouded in mystery, had no earthly home to call home during his ministry, gets torn to pieces by lashings, hung on a cross, and received the curse from God. His incarnation was in large part shameful. It did not come with glorious power. Yet, we see glimmers of his glory that he shares with the Father, like in the Transfiguration. Remember Matthew 17? He goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And it says he was transfigured before him. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white. White as light. Another glimpse of his unveiled glory comes to us in the book we are currently working through. If we can remember Revelation 1, you know, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Um... John gets to see Christ in his unveiled glory. He recounted some of his features this way. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His voice like the roar of many waters. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face like the shining in full strength, like the sun in full strength. The unveiled glory of Christ is so powerful, so awe-provoking, and so frightening that it creates the same effect in both situations. They fall on their faces. And that amazing glory is what grace is preparing us for. To embrace and dwell with forever. God's grace is preparing us for the unveiled, radiant glory of Christ. That is why he saved you. And that is why he is training you. Because he is coming again to dwell with you in unveiled glory. And it is our sweet, blessed hope. And it always has been. 
the blessed hope of the saints. And that it is, beloved, our blessed hope we now await because God's saving grace is preparing us for his eternal glory. Let's pray.